This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Flip side this week, NBR's Dita Deboni considers the media's uptake of a release from Crimson Education this weekend, announcing New Zealand's top ranked schools for gaining entry into top universities. Dita, why is this put a bee in your bonnet? <laughs> <laughs> Let me count the ways. Um, can I just start by saying that I don't have anything per se against people who choose private education because I know this is a bit of a sensitive topic for many people and possibly our readers. Um, what I didn't like about this release is many things, but one is obviously that um, people who would be going to top-ranked universities generally tend to be the elite of this country who have been sold an idea that they need Crimson Education's help to get into these top universities. But the bigger problem is that the media picked this up, um, well, TVNZ and stuff picked it up, um, without sort of any kind of reflection about whether this was accurate information. There's no actual data given that sort of backs up anything they're saying. They're kind of amorphous categories that they're being judged on. and, you know, given that we all know the, the background and business media of, of, you know, what Crimson Education does and Jamie Beaton, um, I think a bit more um, scepticism should have been put towards that. Right. So Crimson Education's business model is one thing. But, one thing. but the other thing here is that it seems to be saying NCEA bad, baccalaureate and all these other yes. systems good. And, you know, you have a problem with that. I have. A, yes, I do have a problem with that as well. Um, I mean, an interview was pitched to us with Jamie Beaton to talk about why New Zealand should get rid of NCEA completely. This is something that's picked up a lot of steam on the right of politics. Um, There's an idea that NCEA is too easy, it's woke, it's this, it's that. And um, this International Baccalaureate is one one exam at the end of the year and I think that's why sort of perhaps more old-fashioned parents prefer this idea, which is what you and I did, an exam at the end of the year and we, you know, I don't know about you, but I kind of crammed the night before and, and said the exam did okay. But now NCEA is done all through the year, but it's more the content of NCEA seems to get people's knickers in a twist. Um, NCEA is accepted overseas, just like International Baccalaureate is, um, but the other one costs more money and it's kind of more prestigious, I think. And I don't know what basis Jamie Beaton has to say that we should drop NCEA altogether. I just think that's... And why that would be accorded any kind of uh, respect as an idea, I'm really not sure. And of course we're in election year now, education's becoming the usual political football that it always is, and there is this idea that what we need to do is reform the way things are taught, bring in more reading, writing, arithmetic, whatever it is. But you're arguing that uh, there's, a, there's a wider context to why children are not achieving. Yes. Um, it is nice to see that National has put together some thoughts about education because while it is always a political football, often not a lot of thought goes behind it except for sloganeering. In this case, they've suggested one hour a day of maths um, reading and writing or maths reading and science, one or the other. And I think... <laughs> That looks good on a whiteboard for sort of a corporate C-suite office. Um, I don't know whether that works in practice, and I would just 
remind readers that National brought in the National Standards many years ago under Hekia Parata, who was Minister of Education, which was a similar kind of thing back to basics and, you know, New Zealand schools aren't teaching the basics and, you know. Um, the problem is there is a long tail of achievement in New Zealand, which we all know about, and it's because we have a lot of children in poverty. We, we do have children coming from homes where perhaps education isn't valued the way it should be, but we also have these overwhelming social problems, I believe, poverty, homelessness, the kind of the precariousness of the rental market and so forth, um, not good nutrition and so forth. So these things weigh into education. And, and one thing that Heke Parata never accepted was that poverty has a role to play in educational outcomes. I think what National has produced here says the same thing, which is, you know, everyone pull pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. If we all do this, we'll all be, you know, if it was that simple, I think we would have done it by now. And um, I think they often put this kind of managerial business sheen over education. And I, yeah, I would question whether it's um, as effective as they think it's going to be. Dita Deboni, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. A rugby league campaign featuring the late, great Tina Turner helped propel the sport to new audiences. And while Martin Devlin writes this week that the nature of advertising has dramatically changed in the last 30 years, there are still lessons for Super Rugby. Martin, why don't you just start by laying out a bit of the Tina Turner ad for those who might not recall what it looked like? Have you watched it? I have, yep. yep. I don't, I don't remember it from the time. It might have been before my time, actually, but I've watched it since. And what do you think? Oh, it's fun, isn't it? It's fun. It's a bit different. Look, it's great fun. I think that, you know, if, 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 if you're watching this interview, people, um, we're talking about the what you get is what you see, 1989 Winfield Cup campaign. Say that out loud. That's a cigarette company sponsoring sport back in 1989. <laughs> uh, you, you need to go and watch this video. It's two minutes of just infectious fun as well. I think, you know, you know the... Half the point of the article, though, is that the shame to me is that these days you you wouldn't be allowed to make another video like that and you wouldn't get away with it. Mm. Mm. And so you see what we've seen recently with the Ruby Tui Super Rugby ad. Well, you know, I'm not trying to compare the two. I mean, what Tina Turner's video did, it was a shameless uh, effort and attempt by the New South Wales Rugby League at the time to try and broaden their audience base um, and more particularly to actually get women watching because mm. rugby league at that stage was solely a male domain in Australia and and you know what they wanted to do was they actually they needed to increase their audience they're looking at half the population which we're watching and going how do we get women to watch and so that always elusive 20 to 30 year old um, female demograph uh, how do you appeal to them well somebody came up with a genius idea well look these are these are big hard rugged muscly blokes um, why don't we kind of sort of, you know, sell a little bit of that? Mm. And so when you look at the video, that's what it is. It's really well edited. It's put to a fantastic song. It's a, you know, it's a sing-along catchy tune. And as I said, you know, it was, you know, the lyrics match the pictures. You know, there's one line which says, you know, some boys, I think it's the opening line, look like a Greek Adonis. And so it cuts to chiseled jawlines and high cheekbones. Some boys look good enough to eat. And so there's a bit of a, a wink and a, a little bit of naughty, you know, a cheeky smile or something like that. It was designed to get women to go, wow, look at that. Well, that's a bit of all right. I might actually like that. Um, and they did in their droves. I mean, this is the, the the thing about it. It was ragingly successful. And now when you look at the the stats that 
half the audience is is uh, women, and and I'm not saying that they go along and they want to watch just men's tight bums or, or big arms or shoulders or whatever, but it's all part of the the advertising sell trip, and it actually worked. And um, these days you wouldn't be allowed to do that. You'd get cancelled and you'd get screamed at by those that moralise over the rest of us. The connection I'm making to the Super Rugby Opiki promo is just how cheap and nasty that was. I'm not saying that Super Rugby in any way should try and sell itself like this. But, you know, just in terms of, of trying to bring in a new audience and bring in a new catchment, I mean, this the production values on that campaign was so low rent. Um, the scripting was so cliched and lame. You know, Ruby Tui telling us, you know, and I'm sure that she's just reading the script. I'm not saying that she wrote this, but, you know, like, these ladies are going to rock your world. Well, no, they weren't, and no, they didn't. Mm. Um, you know, and, 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 and the connection I'm making is that, you know, the, the most basic marketing things haven't really changed over the decades, Hamish. It's very simple. You know, you've got to look at who is your audience, who do you want as your audience, and then how do we get that audience? And Rugby League in 1989 went through just the very simple steps, got it exactly right, and I'm saying that Super Rugby, where are you when it comes to this? Because, you know, I look at that Super Rugby Opiki campaign and I ask those questions. Who's your audience? Who do you want? And how are you going to get them? Well, the answer is, um, we don't know. Um, not sure. Um, we don't have a clue. Mm. Do you have a view on the sort of audience they should be trying to attract? Who do you think they should be trying to pull into Super Rugby? Well, people who love rugby, you mm-hmm. know, and people who love sport. Um, you know, they... You know, they had a million plus people watching the final, the Black Ferns final. So it's, you know, you've got to look at it the reverse way these days, don't you? So there's your million audience. Okay, how do we try and pull even 10% of that audience to keep watching our product? These are the most basic questions New Zealand rugby should be asking themselves. You've already had people sample this product and like it and stay with it for a duration. Yes, it was a World Cup final. Yes, it involves the national team. I know that. But they were watching a really exciting game of rugby. So then connect the dots. How do you get them back watching this game of rugby? Uh, as I've said in the past, there are much better brains get paid a lot more money than I do to solve these things. Um, you know, I'm happy here to be contracted New Zealand rugby. I have a few ideas. You can get in touch with me via Hamish. All right. We'll see if we can get them out of you one day. Martin, thanks very much for your time. Always fun, mate. This week, Duncan Garner takes a look at Mayor Wayne Brown's performance concluding he's a misery guts. Yet he quite likes his style. Duncan, what's going on? Uh, it's a strange position, right? So I, I think good on him for, for getting in, getting trying to get rid of some of the fat in the council because it's clearly there. We all know this. Goff pretended to make cuts. He didn't make cuts. It was all sort of smoke and mirrors. So this guy's going in there and said, yeah, I'll fix it. But his style is dreadful. Mm. His, you know, I call him a, he's the worst of all baby boomers. He's that worst miserable bastard who, you know, he thinks he's his, his way or the highway. He's right. Everyone else is wrong. And calling his... Other councillors financially illiterate for not following his way. That's no way to get a consensus or to get support around the table. This guy needs votes mm. on Thursday. He's going about it all the wrong way. But but I like the fact that he's targeting some of the fat in the council. But we're all having to do this in our businesses. So good on him. What about Thursday's pre-budget speech announcement, whatever they're trying to call it now, excluding some media, things like that? I mean... Chaotic. Yeah. Aside from trying to get councillors on board with what you're trying to do, you've you've surely got a, some sort of responsibility to the public here. He as well. clearly he clearly is not listening to anyone internally because if there's anyone smart internally uh, as a media advisor, they'll be telling him you can't exclude media. Mm. That's not how it works, mate. You, you invite all the media along because that's what we do. It's not it's not for you. This is for the public. The the media are the conduit between yourself and getting the message out there. They are merely there to do their job. 
you've got to pull your head in and stop being such an arrogant bastard and stop being so aloof and out of touch with the rest of society. Get on the ground mm. and do your job. But mm. he, but no one's telling him that. There's no there's no one with enough big boy pants on to say, hey, Mayor. And he needs, someone, he needs someone to be telling them the truth because if they are, he's ignoring them. The other thing as well is that I think, you know, where NBR have made the case that something like selling the airport shares is actually quite a sensible thing to it's do. It's not a bad thing at all. But he's, it's, it's all getting distracted by all this stuff, right? It's a shame, really, because he's actually, within that plan, there's some good stuff there. Mm. Within that plan, there's some debt reduction. Within that plan, there's some control of rates. Within that plan, there's getting rid of some some of these council subsidiaries with more than a thousand staff I, I never knew so he's he's finding he's finding all these bodies where we never knew they existed mm. which is quite phenomenal as I say we've all had to cut our cloth for instance in our business we lost our radio station um, due to a number of things recession included so good on him for doing it but his style and his approach is the way not to succeed yeah um, I'll be interested to see how it goes but I, I I like the fact that he's that he's he's in there shaking it up because we've had a bunch of Labour-aligned mayors who have pretended to make cuts, but they've merely mess- massaged the, the press release, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. if anything. So in your column, you call Brown grumpy old sod, Mr Misery, etc. But then you also go on to say we can still sort of count ourselves lucky that he's here for the city. Yeah, well, well, sort of... well, I think that um, we, we need some change. Yeah. Um, so this is the guy that's going to bring it. But he is a Mr Misery. I mean, if I could get away with some stronger words, I would have. Um, the guy is just a... Just... <sighs> He's unbelievable mm. and almost unbearable. But he's doing a job that needs to be done, I think. So vote on Thursday. Do you think he's going to get this across the line? Well, it's a vote of no confidence otherwise, isn't it? Mm. Because t- to me, um, if the mayor's plan must be adhered to, the mayor's plan, he doesn't have much executive power. This is about his, much of his executive power that he has. So this is like the Prime Minister putting up an idea in Parliament and the, the Parliament, including his own MPs, voting it down. This is a split council, we all know that, it always is, but he needs to get more than 51% to get this thing across the line. His his leadership effectively is on the line. This is a test of, what I'd do as a journalist in this, if I was covering this round, I would make this into a test of his leadership. This is not about a budget, this is about whether his mayoralty can continue. This His, his job, his head, his job is on the line. Duncan, thanks very much for your time. No problems. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. This week's column from Simon Bridges looks at a hot topic being discussed in the upper reaches of Auckland's chattering classes, stadiums. Now, you detect two clear camps, Simon. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, You know, it's funny, I suppose, in the Auckland Business Chamber role I have, you get to hear these things and the the different sides give you their views. I think there's pretty clearly two clear camps. There's the Eden Park team uh, and then there's more of a a Bledisloe Wharf uh, team. And and the reality is both have got their merits at some level. If you have a a basic starting proposition, which I do, which is, yeah, it would be good to have something bigger and better to get the kind of events we want and deserve the way you know, the bigger Aussie cities uh, do. I think when you look at Eden Park, um, I mean, it's considerable merit is really the fact that it's already there. And so you can do this in chunk sizes, you could do the roof, and then you could do the other improvements. It wouldn't be so costly because it's already there. I mean, 
the people I talk to say half a billion, let's put a bit more, let's say it's 750 million. Well, that's that's kind of barely a CRL cost increase, you know, in the last six, six months or something. Um, environmentally, there's a good thing there. And, and, and um, I think the only thing or the big one I would identify against it is there has been a fair bit of nimbyism around Eden Park doing more uh, over time. And with our planning laws, maybe that's a bit hard to, uh, well, that's an issue. I think on Bledisloe, uh, wharf, uh, it, it would be the big kahuna, as I say in the con, would be iconic. You know, we'd 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 potentially have something like a Sydney Opera House that we'd be proud of, and and people would 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 you know would talk about. Um, I think on the other side of it, though, I'm come down on being not convinced that in the end a really big fifty five thousand, let's say, seater um, uh, on reclaimed land out on a wharf is realistic you know i think um we find it in auckland hard to build significant infrastructure that's just basic at the best of times uh, let alone this you have i think a bunch of environmental issues um and and so that's kind of you know i'm, I'm skeptical i suppose um, i think hopefully what we can agree on though is that the status quo uh it probably isn't good enough we do need to do better and as I say, in terms of realism, maybe that leads back to better, a bigger Eden Park. So so for you, it really comes down to infrastructure and cost. They're the main things that would say that, uh, you know, we should just stick with a better Eden Park. I, I think they're big factors. I mean, the truth is, you know, in Auckland, we've got, what have we got? Watamata Harbour Crossing, CRL finishing up a cost overruns, um, light rail potentially, and not to mention probably a dozen other things that need to happen in transport. I mean, there are real issues around paying that. E even if it wasn't the sort of the cost, I suppose the point is, you know, um, the capacity in terms of labour to do it, the know-how to do it. Um, I have a fear on the Bledisloe Wharf that, you know, we'll still be talking about it in decades to come um, because it's too big and it's too ambitious. And we just, yeah, costing wise, capacity wise, don't have the ability that, to do that. The Eden Park one seems to me to have more pragmatism in terms of it's already there. We could get on and chunk this off and have a better stadium for Taylor Swift, you know, ACDC, whoever it is. Uh, that you want to see, not to mention a bit of Maratini and um, and and some some hopefully great global sports. Mm -hmm. Now you say that we should be keeping up with the likes of Brisbane and Adelaide rather than Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, what is it that we should be striving for? Yeah, I think you know. Sadly, um, I'd love to sort of put us in the category of Melbourne and Sydney, but these are significantly bigger. Um, dare I say, more prosperous cities uh, today. Uh, their, their events budgets are in the many hundreds of millions, look in both cases. So I don't think it's a fair comparison. I do think a fair comparison though is broadly the same kind of population size, uh, your Adelaide's, your Brisbane's uh, and, um, and your Perth's. And um, I think the truth is right now, and I don't say this is a massive expert, but they have pretty compelling event schedules around sports, culture and entertainment. And that's what we should be aspiring to. Um, if we take Perth, for example, 
I don't know if you've got the email. I can't remember which promoter sent it to me, but Coldplay's there in the reasonably near future. I think that's near to selling out. Um, they have pretty clever ways of making sure that they prioritise people coming from further afield who are going to have more bed nights. Um, and, and there's no doubt they'll be paying Coldplay for that pleasure, but they'll make a lot out of it uh, as a city in terms of the economic um, effects of it. That's the sort of thing we should be aspiring to more, better, bigger events uh, because they've got a great social, cultural, but you know, from where I sit, every bit is important economic dividend um, that we don't want to miss out on. So a revamped Eden Park would be the, the draw card, you think, to these big international acts? I, I think it would get us, pragmatically speaking, as close as we're probably going to get. I think you know, it would be something, well, I think we're already at a level proud of it. It's got an iconic past uh, to it. What I also say in the column, and, and, and this is not an original thought, it's one that comes through when you talk to the, the Eden Parkers, is there is the capacity uh, for a smaller, more bespoke stadium downtown, say on Bledisloe Wharf. Maybe it's a 10, 15, 20,000 seater. Now, what that would mean is that, you know, for the Blues, for your, um, maybe if we got a regional soccer team to compete in the, the Australasian uh, a cup that there is for that maybe the smaller um, entertainment events they could be there in a full stadium rather than kind of you know with 30,000 spare seats uh, at Eden at Eden Park now to pay for all of this it will involve I'm sure taxpayer or ratepayer or both um, I'm coming to the party but what's also true is you know I think there's a pretty strong consensus don't send me the hate mail if you know you have a different view, but around um, rationalising. Uh, North Harbour's a sitter for that. Look, possibly also the likes of um, Mount Smart. That would provide some capital uh, to do some of this. Maybe, maybe the Nirvana that we can hope for, realistically, is a bigger, better Eden Park and a, a smaller, bespoke uh, a downtown stadium as well, rather than the one big kahuna, which I fear will never happen. Simon, thanks for your time. Thanks very much. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.